since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so you will not grow weary and lose heart. So good news today uh, for all of you who were sick and tired of hearing me say the name Melchizedek over and over and over again last week. You won't have to hear it one time that, uh, other than that one I just did. Other than that, we will not be saying that name for quite some time uh, around these parts. Now, if, if you were paying attention to last week's sermon, you may have started to notice that the, the tone of the book of Hebrews is starting to take a, a little bit of a turn here in chapter 7. Right, over and over again, for these first seven weeks, we've continued to hear this same type of message over and over again. This message that was, was saying to these Jewish converts, saying, cling to your faith. Right? Hold firm to your faith. Whatever it is that you have to do to make sure that you are holding tight to, to what is important, make sure you're doing it. But now, as we're in chapter 8, you're especially going to notice that, that something has changed. You're going to see now that, that the author is going to be very clear with his readers that there is a choice to make. It reminded me a lot of choose-your-own-adventure books. Are those still a thing? Sophie, you're my book person. Are there still choose-your-own-adventure books? Sure? All right, good. I remember, though, being in, like, elementary school. And when we would have our library time, I would always make it my mission to go out and find a choose-your-own-adventure book. Um, I think it was probably because it felt a little more interactive to me. It probably spoke a little bit to my, my maybe sometimes rebellious side that, that the ending of the book was not set in stone. That I had a choice, that I had an influence that I could play over the book. That, that I could kind of put my own spin on it. In all actuality, obviously, there still were only a couple different ways the book was ending. Right? No pages were ever going to be added to the book because of the choices that I made. But, again, it gave me this illusion. It played a little trick maybe on my elementary school-aged naive brain to make me think that I had some semblance of control over the outcome of the story. Again, I'd feel like I had a choice. If I was reading a book about a knight in shining armor, you know, maybe he's, he's standing at the mouth of a cave and the sun is glistening off of his armor. He has his sword in his hand. And, and maybe my first option would be that I, I stand in front of the mouth of the cave and I yell, come out, you mighty beast, face me. One option. The other option might be that I timidly kind of tiptoe into the cave a little bit, uh, sneaking in to see what I might find. Okay, so Anthony's an option B. I'm more of an option A kind of guy. But, but the point is, is that sometimes the decision that I would make, it would lead to victory. I would slay the dragon. Sometimes the choice that I would make, it would lead to loss, and the dragon would slay me. 
And I don't think up until now I, I've realized that I think there's actually something formative in those fiction books that actually helps prepare us for the real world. Because we make choices, and the results are going to vary based upon those choices that we make. What we started to see last week in Hebrews 7, and what you're going to continue to see over the next weeks through chapters 8, 9, and 10, is that the author of Hebrews is going to specifically teach these Jewish Christians living in the first century that there is something new. And he's going to specifically call it a new and better covenant. Last week, he took the time again to remind us that we have this, this new, greater high priest, this new, greater high priest that is from a different line than the earthly high priests that we are, are, are used to seeing, and that we had a choice to make. The, the choice would be is we have this superior high priest, we could choose to follow him, or we could choose to fall back onto the inferior. We could choose the foolish way, if we would, and fall back to what was old. And over the next three weeks, what we're going to see together is that the author of Hebrews is going to continue to, to pound his readers into submission in a way to get them to accept the fact that they are slowly backing themselves towards the edge of a cliff. He wants them to understand that they are playing a very dangerous game, that they're going to face temptation to shrink back to what was old. And as they would shrink back to what was old, that means they would be, be bringing back in and accepting all of the old ways of the Levitical priesthood, of, of temple sacrifices, and of ceremonial law. But what they did not yet realize, what, what they had not yet accepted, is that if they were to make the choice to return to this old way of life, if they made the choice to return to the old lesser covenant, that it was very much like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. Not every choice they would make would always lead to a happy ending. The choice was, for, for these people, it was, are you going to choose Christ and his new covenant, or are you going to choose to return to what you knew and return to what was old? And if you made that choice, what you would soon realize is that what was old, that old covenant, is it was already at the bottom of the cliff. And that you had taken one step too far backwards, and you yourself were now headed down. He's going to make it very clear that going back to what was old would be akin to leaping off a cliff to your spiritual death. And he doesn't really leave us any room for debate. He's going to tell them and tell us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't keep what is old while with our mouth we are saying that we're clinging to what is new. To set the tone for, for what we're going to read in chapter 8, we're actually going to jump to the very last verse of the chapter, which is verse 13. And again, it will be up on the screen here. It says this. It says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Silly question, but can we cling to something that is obsolete? Can we cling to something that, that what the author just told us is going to vanish away? Of course we can't. Over and over again, all through Scripture, we're told to, to fix our eyes on something that is permanent, 
to grab a hold of something that is solid, that no matter what the world throws, no matter how high the waters may rise, no matter how much the wind may blow, that it will always remain in its fixed place. There's no logical reason why someone would want to cling to something that was going to soon disappear. This is a weird transition, but has anyone here ever seen the show Ultimate Beastmasters on Netflix? Am I the only one? Roger nodded his head. Okay, good. I got one of you. Uh, how about this? American Ninja Warriors? You ever seen that one? Okay. So Ultimate Beastmaster is kind of in that same vein as, as American Ninja Warriors. But the idea is, if you've never seen either one, there are these amazingly incredible fit men and women. Stronger, faster, more agile than I could ever imagine being. And, and, and the show is, is very entertaining because you watch these like superhumans compete on an obstacle course. They run and they jump and they display an amount of upper body strength that like puts me to shame. I'm, I'm almost embarrassed. I can't make eye contact with the television. But there is one obstacle that I love in Ultimate Beastmaster because it very much levels the playing field. It's called the mag wall. And again, maybe only Roger knows what I'm talking about, but the mag wall is this. Um, you've seen rock walls where people have to climb vertically. Well, the mag wall is a rock wall that goes horizontally, and it's suspended above water. So the contestants, they have to leap onto this rock wall, and they're clinging onto this rock wall by these maybe two-inch little grips with everything that they have. And they have to try to make their way from the left side of this, this wall all the way over to the right. And you would think for people that were in this type of physical shape, it, it would be easy enough. See, but the trick of the mag wall is all of these little tiny hand grips that they have, they're all on timers. And they're all magnetized to the wall. So as they're making their way across, the, the mag wall, sometimes what they're clinging to, it falls away and it disappears. And, and here's what I can tell you is it does not matter how strong you are or how fast you are, or agile you think that you might be, if you find yourself clinging to one of these grips when it releases from the wall, you're going to get wet. I actually, I brought a video of it I want you guys to watch so you get an idea of this metaphor and why it makes Hardcore sense. Hardcore expert from France. Use his hops to make his way onto the mag wall. Now these mags are gonna fall off. Every two seconds, another one falls off, so you gotta move through quickly. You might get caught with one of the mags falling off. He's going too slow. That's what happens. That mag wall will get you. That'll get you because you think you have a good thing and then you fall flat on your face. All right, I don't know what happened to our audio there because honestly, the last line is really the reason I showed you that video. The announcer says, man, that mag wall will get you. You think you have a grip of something solid and then all of a sudden it just vanishes away. This analogy is extremely appropriate because uh, the people who were living in the first century that were still clinging to what was old, see, this wasn't just a metaphor for them, that what was old was soon going to vanish away. This was a very real, a very physical truth that what was old, what they were clinging to, that it was actually going to physically disappear, that it would be no more. You see, in the, in the Old Covenant, and in order for the Old Covenant to function, it hinged upon there being this place, this real physical place, a tangible place where, where religion could happen. When God's covenant was given to Moses, Moses was, was told to erect a tent or, or a tabernacle. And in this meticulously designed tabernacle, God's presence would dwell among his people. 
And then the first permanent structure was made when, when the first temple was built by Solomon. Then finally, after the Babylonian exile, another physical place was erected as the second temple was constructed, and this second temple would stand for hundreds and hundreds of years. The center of the Jewish faith for generation after generation. It's this second temple that Jesus himself would actually walk the grounds of. See, but the thing is, this second temple, as the book of Hebrews is being written, it is not long for this world. Jesus himself actually prophesies about this, the fact that this temple, that it would not stand forever. It's Matthew 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You see, the second temple even in its lesser form from the original, as this temple sat here, and, and again, the 60s, about A.D., when this book was written, it was soon to be wiped off the face of the earth. We've walked through this history together before, so I'm not going to go through the whole history lesson with you, but in about 70 A.D., the Roman-Jewish war was going to reach a climax. And as it did, in a moment, tens of thousands of Jews were going to lose their lives. Those who did not die were going to be banished, right, displaced from their capital city forever. And the temple that was so important to, to the ritualistic religion that the Jews were observing, it was going to be wiped off the face of the earth. It would be desecrated and it would be destroyed. And we stand here in the year 2023, almost 2,000 years later, and, and that temple has not yet been reconstructed. So if you find yourself hanging over a cliff, or if you find yourself clinging to the idea of temple sacrifices and, and temple worship, if you believe that how tight you cling to those things is what is going to keep you from dropping to your spiritual death in an instant, right? no matter how strong you thought your faith was, no matter how obedient you thought your religion was, in an instant the temple was gone and you were going to fall. You see, at that moment, the centerpiece of the Old Covenant, it vanished away. And you may be saying to yourself, well, what's the point, Daniel? And I would say I'm glad you asked that because in verse 1 of Hebrews 8, the author starts by telling us what the point is. In verses 1 through 7, he says, Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediated is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
Next week, the author of Hebrews is going to dive deeper into the tabernacle and, and deeper into the sacrificial system. T today, he's still kind of talking big picture with us here. The big picture, as we've been saying week after week, is that we have a great high priest whose name is Jesus. And our great high priest, he sits at the right hand of whom? Of God. Our high priest of a new and better covenant, according to verse 2 that we just read, it says, He ministers on our behalf in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus ministers in a true tent. Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle that is in heaven that was established by God. And, and He's there ministering on our behalf, and He's sitting in the presence of God. Every word here is chosen specifically by, by the author to steer folks away from what was weak and to tor steer them towards what is strong or, or steer them away from what is about to expire and steer them towards what is going to be eternal. In this heavenly place of worship, Jesus is ministering on our behalf as he's seated next to God. Right? We remember all that the high priests had to do here on earth just to merely stand in his presence. How if they, they were to do anything just a little bit wrong that they would literally drop dead. But not our high priest. Our high priest of our new covenant is seated, is showing his authority. It says even the tabernacle that he's ministering in, it's superior to the earthly temple that is soon going to be destroyed. <clears throat> We're reminded of this time that, that happened way back in Exodus. right When Moses received these very detailed, very intricate instructions about building the, the tabernacle... He says this was all done. The reason all of those details had to be so precise, that everything had to be constructed exactly the way that, that God wanted it to be, it was so that to the highest degree possible, that that tabernacle could be a facsimile to the same tabernacle that Jesus Christ now ministers in. He says even with how detailed, even with how glorious that tent that Moses assembled was, that no matter how detail-oriented and, and skillful the craftsmen were who constructed it, that it was still just a copy, or he says, a shadow of what heaven holds. No matter how detail-oriented, how beautiful, how many treasures they filled it with, this idea that it's just a fleeting shadow compared to the real thing. This imagery of the fleeting shadow, that, that is what stuck with me this week as I prepared this message. The idea that the first covenant and, and the, the temple system of sacrifice, that it was just a shadow. By definition, a shadow is fleeting, and a shadow is temporary. A shadow is here one moment, and then it's gone the next, because a shadow is completely dependent on its light source. If the light source is to dim... Or to move, the, the, the shadow has to, 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 to give way to the light's influence. It, without that outside influence, the shadow doesn't exist. There is no shadow that is permanent. And we never look at a shadow and expect it to be so. And even if the lighting, the light source that we're giving is perfect, and it is bright, and it is stationary, the truth is if all that you see is a shadow... 
you're not really able to ascertain exactly what the original image was. If, if I were to, to find some way that I could stand in front of you all here this morning like this, and, and we have a perfect bright spotlight in front of me that would cast a shadow up onto this screen, you'd be able to tell some things about me. Right? You'd probably be able to look at my shadow and be able to say, well, that's a human's shadow. We know that. Okay? Uh, maybe if I, I turn to the side based on my hair or my beard, maybe you'd be able to tell that it's a man's shadow. But if all you saw about me was my shadow, you really would not be able to tell much more about who I am or, or how I appear. Right? You'd have no idea what color my eyes were. You wouldn't know if the clothing I was wearing was fancy designer name brands or if it was hand-me-down rags. Right? You, you, you really wouldn't be able to tell whether I was 18 years old or whether I was 48 years old, would you? Right? Maybe as I turned again to the side, you'd be able to see that I need to do a couple extra crunches at the, at the gym, but really what you would be seeing is just a dim reflection, a general idea about who this person was standing inside of you, but without the contrast, without the color, without the, the depth perception, you would always be missing something about the original. The thing is, most people back then, they didn't understand this. Or they didn't want to understand this. See, they, they had convinced themselves that as God's chosen people, the existence of the shadow was proof that God was with them and that God was for them. And after living with this shadow version of the temple for the last five to six hundred years, the truth is they could not imagine a scenario when that shadow would ever change or that shadow might ever be extinguished. Right? To them, the shadow that they were putting their faith in, that they were clinging to, it was real and it was tangible. They went to bed each night knowing that it was there and they expected that every morning when they woke up it was still going to be there for them to cling to. Until one day, it no longer was. See, to even speak about the destruction of the temple or to, to allude to the fact that it may not be there forever in many circles, that would have been heresy, that would have been blasphemous. And this is really surprising because God did not intend for this news to be a surprise to the Jewish people. The fact that this old covenant that had been given through Moses, that it would one day fade away like a shadow whose light source had grown dim, this isn't revealed to them for the first time in this letter to the Hebrews. This is information that would have always been available to them if they would have only had ears that wanted to hear. You see, as we, as we read the last four or five verses here in, in, in chapter 8, as we look at verses 8 through 12, what we're going to see now is, is that in these verses, we no longer are listening to the words of the author of Hebrews. He's now quoting directly from the prophet Jeremiah. The author is going to be quoting directly from a scroll that if the people would have cared to, these very same words might have been read inside of their temple. The same temple that would soon be desecrated and taken down by an evil Roman general. As we read these words, again, that our Jeremiah's remember when he lived, that he existed in this time period just before Daniel, right? Just before the exile to Babylon. So what he's writing, this warning, and I shouldn't even really say warning, more it's just a lesson, it's almost a heads up from God. He's writing this so long ago that he wants his people to be prepared for what is to come. This lesson that he has for them, in the words of Jeremiah, it's been around longer than the second temple has actually stood. 
And this is what it says in verses 8 through 12. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their inequities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah writes that the days are coming where God is going to establish a new covenant. He tells the people that the way things have always been, that it's not going to stand forever. He says the way things have always been, it, it never was intended to be God's final plan. He says the first covenant that, that we were given, it was never intended to be the way that God would be reunited with his people, with his favorite creation. And this is so important for us to understand because we need to remember that Jesus was always plan A. Right? J Jesus was never plan B. J Jesus did not come into the picture because the law failed. Right? The law existed in its time for a purpose so that, that man and women would have to be made aware of their sinfulness. It was always God's plan all along that Jesus Christ would come and that he would offer a new covenant that he would invite us into. And it's a covenant that is no longer going to be dependent on any one physical place. Right? He says, at this time of the new covenant, God's law is no longer going to be able to be contained to scrolls. You know, at this time period in the first century, and even still to this day, there are certain sects of Judaism that, that wear a, a box strapped to their forehead. And inside that box, they have some of God's laws written down, trying to fulfill this prophecy that Jeremiah gave, that, that God's word would be on their mind all day long. And, and, and what we're seeing here is God says, behavior like that is nice. But behavior like that is a mere shadow and it's, it's there to point us towards a time where God's law is no longer going to be able to be contained in a box. It will be written on our hearts. It will be written on our minds. A time when, when all will be able to know God personally, that there will be no more need for earthly intermediaries. Right? There's not going to be this, this privileged class of people called teachers. Right? That all should be able to go to their neighbor, to their brother, and say, Know the Lord. Most importantly, a time when God would show his great mercy and that he would remember our sins no more. These people that this letter was written to, we have to remember that they have already tasted what is new. These people have already had a chance to experience the Holy Spirit. They've seen the real thing. And going back to cling to what is a fleeting shadow, it would be a really bad choice in their choose-your-own-adventure story. Jeremiah wrote those words that we read, again, at a time as, as exile was approaching. And again, at a time where, where temple sacrifice would have been impossible. 
So just think for a moment how sweet those words would have been to, to a Jewish person living in Babylon who, who desired their heart to remain faithful. Right? How hopeful those words would have been, knowing that you can't cling to the temple right now, but hearing that God was going to do something new. And then I immediately go to think about how fast those words were forgotten when the second temple was constructed. People don't change that much. And for us as, as Christians today, I think we need to remember that there was a time where, where this message of hope, of this new covenant, sounded so sweet to us and brought us so much joy. This idea that God, the creator of everything, the author of the world, would come and dwell inside of me. Right? This idea that I could pray directly to Him without an intermediary that I'd be able to go and confess my sins directly to him, that there was no longer a need for a, a confessional, you know, some box with two doors. No, I, I could talk directly to my creator. But far too often, even today, what we see is that people are willing to settle for a copy. We're, we're too often too quick to settle for the dim shadow. We're willing to cling to the dim shadow instead of grabbing a hold of the truth. What we see too often today is that people chase blessings over God's will. People will chase prosperity over God's peace. Far too often, us Christians, we cling to our personal preferences harder than we do the pursuit of the lost. Christians too often will, 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 will want to grab hold of a shadow as they sacrifice truth in the name of inclusion. What we have to always keep in the front of our minds is that what is new is greater than what was old. That the second is actually greater than the first. See, this, this new covenant that came so long ago it was greater than what had come before it, undoubtedly. And even though what is new to us came 2,000 years ago, it is and it always will be greater than any shadow that as men we may desperately try to cling to. Pray with me. Father, how grateful am I that you do know our hearts that each and every one of us that have, have professed Your Son as our Lord, God, You know what it is that we are desperately trying to cling to. It's probably not the Old Covenant. It's probably not the temporal system of sacrifices. But God, there are plenty of other things that are fleeting shadows that I know I try to grab a hold of that I know when my back is up against the wall that I try to scramble to. And Father, whatever those things might be, even good things, Father, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's just, just, just man-made tradition that makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside when we do it. Father, I just pray that we would always desire to cling to what is fixed and what is permanent, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that we would let all other fleeting shadows disappear out of our lives. 
that we would chase your will, that we would chase your peace, that we'd remember that, that this gospel, that it is written on our hearts, Father. And you have tasked us with the most important job that, that any man can ever carry, and that is to take this good news out to the lost. Whether they live next door or on the other side of the earth, whether they look like us or they don't, Father, whether they are rich or they are poor, the only thing that we need to ask people to cling to is that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior that his sacrifice on the cross, God, that, that this new covenant that is written in his blood will always be superior to anything else that we might want to cling to. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.